16,500 people assembled on Thanksgiving Day in downtown Minneapolis to participate in a five-kilometer run. I suppose some walked. But that's a lot of people wanting to justify a little more turkey that afternoon. That's a lot of bodies out there. 16,500 to run five kilometers. It also represents a lot of healthy hearts, doesn't it? You need a healthy heart for the rest of your body to function properly and to be able to do something like run five kilometers. There may be nothing wrong with your legs, nothing wrong with your lungs, but if your heart is not functioning, if it's diseased, if you have some cardiovascular trouble of some sort, you watch 5K runs, you don't run them. A healthy heart is essential to the function of the entire body. A healthy heart, then, we understand, is a great blessing. It's not to be taken for granted. It's not a given. And it's worthy of protection through exercise and through right diet. In a similar manner, as the followers of Jesus Christ gathered here today, as those who rejoice to align our lives with the authoritative Word of God, we realize that the health of our inner being, what the Bible refers to as our spiritual heart, is of utmost importance to the proper function of everything else in our lives. Without a healthy heart, spiritually speaking, that figurative sense of the heart of our inner being, without a healthy heart, we can do a lot of devout religious things and be utterly diseased by legalism. Without a healthy heart, we can avoid legalism and be corrupted by the desires of the flesh. The consideration before us today is our heart. What is the condition of your heart? Where do you stand today as we gather here together as the body of Christ? Is your heart spiritually healthy? Are you vigilantly guarding your heart from moral corruption, from twisted attitudes, false thinking? Are you guarding it in faithfulness to the Lord? Is it fueling godly actions and godly words and attitudes in your daily life? Is it supplying for you spiritual beauty, moral skill, godly discernment? Is that what is flowing from your heart today? Only by actively nurturing a healthy heart will we ever have the strength to live spiritually vigorous, morally robust lives before the Lord. And it's this proposition that is at, forgive the term, the heart of Proverbs chapter 4. If you'll make your way there at the end of chapter 4 and verse 20. It's this proposition that's at the heart of our Father's instruction to us in Proverbs 4, verse 20 and following. You'll notice here as, you, as your eye meets the text at verse 20 that we have this characteristic introduction, my son. And so it marks off this section of chapter 4 as a distinct section. Remember that the setting is the home or the king's court in Israel where young men were trained to live with skill and godly discernment being brought up and taught to discern 
the truth and to live a life of wisdom. From our perspective, we encounter the text as moral instruction at the feet of our Heavenly Father. Some of us are young men here, but the majority of us are not. And so we come before this text sitting at the feet of our Father to discern His call upon our life, His instruction for us to live wisely, to be trained in godliness, to receive His counsel. Now in verses 10 through 19, the Father employs the theme of journeying on the right path. You remember in that section, as we looked at that last week, the references to walking and paths and stumbling and moving forward along that path. That's the kind of the theme that he uses. As we come to verses 20 through 27, there's a shift to human anatomy as the theme that drives this section. So as we proceed, notice the references to the human body. That's just there for structure. It's just there by way of illustration. But it does mark out this section as something unique, standing uh, on its own. So the Father uses this literary mechanism to stress this central idea that it is the heart, it is the core of who we are that affects everything else in our moral lives. Now this is, this is wisdom itself in directing us this way. The Father is not saying, for instance, here are the list of rules to keep and you'll be a wise person. Now, there are instructions. There's many imperatives in the book of Proverbs. But he doesn't lay out here, here's three principles to follow, merely. But rather, he looks at the core of our being and says that we must address the heart. We must address that inner being. And look here as we move forward in life. So the Father, using this literary mechanism, stresses the importance of the heart, or said another way, the internalization of the Father's counsel purifies the heart, resulting in the externalization of moral skill. So it's receiving and rightly valuing the truth that leads then to externalizing and living out that truth in our daily lives. It's not by merely getting the outside in order, it's starting with the inside. It's purifying the soul. It's, it's receiving the truth and then living out from there. In the first four verses, the stress falls on the internalization of wisdom in one's heart. The internalization of wisdom in one's heart, beginning at verse 20, Proverbs 4. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. We're called here to incline our ears to wisdom. That is to open our soul to the reception of God's counsel. As genuine followers of the Lord, as believers in Jesus Christ, our orientation is to receive in truth, to take it in, to feed upon it. And that's what he's calling him to do here. We meet yet again the insistence that the Son pays careful attention to the doctrinal tradition passed on from the Father to the Son. Last week, looking at the fact that He received it from His Father. But there is a body of truth that is passed down from one to another, and it is the truth. 
can certainly be falsehood that's passed down from generation to generation, but here he's saying this is the counsel of God. Receive it. Tune your ear to it. Respond to it. Kidner says well in this regard, a major part of godliness lies in dogged attentiveness to familiar truths. Dogged attentiveness to familiar truths. This is the orientation. Be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Verse 21, let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. Keep focused on the truth. Guard wisdom in your soul. The Father's instructions are personified here, aren't they? It's almost as if wisdom can get away. It can escape from you. Guard it. Keep it under wraps. Don't lose sight of it. We might put it this way. Keep an eye on my counsel. Don't let it escape from your heart. Treasure it. We should not look at God's word or the admonitions of godly counselors as annoying interruptions to our agenda. As these repeated guidelines that are simply irritating. Rather, as the law of Moses was stored and kept safe in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that? That box that Israel had within the tent uh, of meeting in the place where God met with His people at the tabernacle. In that box, the word of Moses was stored. It was kept safe. It was treasured there among the people. It's in that sense that we should receive godly counsel, that we should receive the Word of God, to store it up in our heart in a treasured place where it's guarded and safe and honored. Respecting the voices God places in our life that call us to embrace the truth. So much of this is lost in our culture with the that's your opinion response. But there is an opinion that God presents in His Word. There's a truth that comes from Him to us. And when we speak that truth, that truth is to be treasured in our soul. And why is that? Why should we treasure the truth of God in our soul? Verse 22, for, you notice the connecting word, for this reason, they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Some people have the view of God as, I give you my word to make your life miserable. And if you really, really suffer through life obeying my word, you'll get into heaven. That's a pathetic view of God's truth. And it's found nowhere in this book. In this book of Proverbs, in Scripture as a whole, God's Word is our life. They are life to those who find them. They are healing to all of their flesh. Life here has the sense of welfare, of spiritual success. And notice it says here, to those who find them. The emphasis again is on the need to go hard after wisdom, to seek it out. So it is obedience to the Word of God, it is actively synchronizing my life to God's counsel that determines the quality of the life that I live. We want to know where our life stands. How does it line up with the revelation of God? It is when we receive that Word, when we treasure that Word, when we follow it, it is healing to all our flesh. What does that mean? It's it's healing to all our flesh. I don't think this is a promise of physical health per se. Sometimes that's the result 
of godly living. But I think we should interpret the figure of speech in keeping with the context. The heart is used figuratively, and I think the healing of the flesh, the the health of the body, is also to be taken then figuratively. When we take the wisdom of God into our hearts, the results are systemic. That is, the entire spiritual being is affected. In the physical sense, a healthy heart is crucial to the function of the entire body. In like manner, when our heart is nurtured on God's truth, it has a systemic effect on every aspect of our lives. If you embrace the truth of God, if you treasure it and love it and take it in willingly and heed it, it will show up in your life. That will be evident as others see the way that you live. There will be success there. There will be, in a sense, health to every aspect of your life because this heart issue has been dealt with. I've received the truth of God. Now here's the essence of the matter at hand. As we talk of this internalization, the heart of the passage strikes at verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. All this talk of heart, what actually is it? What is meant here in this figurative sense of heart? I think it's one of those words, we kind of all know what it means, and nobody can define it, It, right? It's it's, it's really difficult to say, here's what it is, but you kind of have a sense of what it is. But let me labor just a little bit in trying to define the heart. In the Bible, heart stands for all that we are at the core of our inner being. It's not something that's touchable, of course. It's something that is, in a figurative sense, all that we are at the core of our being. Everything we do, think, feel, and desire flows from the heart. Some of you will appreciate this, but let me go a bit deeper, and at least you can say I've heard a real scholarly definition of the heart. This is a really good definition. It's not real easy to follow, but from Kyle and Dalich, it says it is this. The heart is the intellectual soul center of man. In its concrete, central unity, its dynamic activity, and its ethical determinations on all sides. It's choosing of right and wrong. All the radiations of corporeal and of soul life concentrate there. Everything of body and soul comes out of the heart and again unfold themselves from thence, that is, they come from there. The heart, an effect back to the heart. The heart is the instrument of the thinking, will, perceiving life of the Spirit. It is the seat of the knowledge of self, of the knowledge of God, of the knowledge of our relationship to God, and also of the law of God impressed on our moral nature. It is the workshop of our individual spiritual and ethical form of life brought about by self-activity. Wow. All of that, some people cynically would say, in other words, you have no idea what you're talking about. But actually, as you listen through each of those sentences, it really strikes a significant issue of what the heart is as presented in Scripture. Now that's a lot to chew on, but at least you can say you've thought about it once. We kind of know what the heart is. It's our inner being. It's all that we are at our very 
at the very center of our being. So we are to keep this heart. We must guard our inner being, diligently watching over it. You know, this may be news to some. You're really not spending time in your life looking at your inner being. You just let it happen. You just let things take place. You really don't look at your heart as something to guard. The Hebrew word is is difficult to translate here. It's really lacking something of the comparative idea of the original text with the sense that above all watching, watch your heart. So it's saying to us as a priority above all the things that you guard in life, protect your heart as the most valuable stewardship committed to your care. Focus on the inner being. Focus on your immaterial spiritual self and guard it. Why? Verse 23, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard it above all other guardings. Jealously guard your heart because from it flow the springs of life. What does that mean? It's saying that who we are, how we live, the way that we interpret life, and the skill and discernment with which we handle life flow from within, from who we are at the core of our being. We can maybe illustrate it by the ancient well. Ancient wells, particularly in Palestine, were very important. It's a dry, it's a parched land in many places, and they would dig down deep into the earth till they reached a ledge of rock under the surface. And on that ledge of rock, the water would flow across it and it would naturally purify the water. And so a well took a lot of work to dig down that deep and to preserve that digging down to that flow of water below the surface of the earth. And so you see things in the Scripture like people rolling a rock on top of the well. Why? To preserve it, protecting it from some contamination, like a curious animal falling down into your well can really affect the quality of your water. And so they would guard against that and would jealously guard the ownership of the well also. In fact, it was a sad thing, but invading armies, when they had no desire necessarily to occupy the land, would sometimes come in, soldiers would die, and they'd take some of the soldiers defending their territory, and, and this invading army, and they would throw their dead bodies into a well. That was a way to assure that it was now contaminated. As the rotting flesh was down there in the well, there'd be no way for that well to ever be used again unless those bodies were drawn out of there, which of course would be a pretty nasty project. from it, from the heart, flow the springs of life, draws on this kind of analogy. Your heart is like a well, and from it you draw out your life. Your life flows from the condition of your heart. What we say to others... The thoughts that steer our actions, the attitudes that prevail in our souls, the deeds of our bodies, what we love, even the way that we love, all of this is drawn out of our hearts like water is drawn from a well. 
And so my heart, like a well, must be jealously guarded. Because it is the wellspring of my life. We need to protect our hearts from sinful thoughts, from disordered love, and from false belief. When those things go into our soul, you're not going to draw pure water out of that heart. Life does not flow from circumstances. It does not flow from your family, from your money, from your occupation in life. It doesn't flow from your physical abilities. Life flows from your heart. And so, first of all, we must guard what we love and the way in which and the degree to which we love it. This is something on which to focus as we consider how to guard our hearts. What do you love? How do you love it? To what degree? We need to learn to battle inordinate love for good things. We have love for a house, a car, a husband, a wife, children, sports, music, entertainment, leisure, travel, friends, reading, a hobby, a pastime. All of these things in and of themselves, nothing necessarily wrong with them, but how do we love them? All may be legitimate pursuits as they stand, but we must preserve our hearts from loving these things as ultimate or to an inappropriate degree. All of that inordinate love is poison in the well. And we need to guard our hearts from such poison by the things that we love. Secondly, how do we guard our hearts? We guard what we think about. Feed your mind on true and noble ideas. If you feed your mind on false doctrine or worldly philosophy, you poison the well of the heart. What do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen to? I'm not saying we necessarily eliminate every consideration of life in a sinful world. There is a certain study that we do of a fallen world that is appropriate and right. But are we feeding falsehood into our minds? Are we soaking up false doctrine? Are we soaking up worldly values without any discernment? That's not guarding your heart. Guard your heart concerning what you think about. And I think also this involves in controlling our thought life, just a little different angle. Those who suffer wrong from others, how do you think about that? What do you allow your mind to think through as you deal with the wrong suffered at the hands of others? Do you permit yourself to fantasize about taking revenge? Do you permit yourself to throw up your hands in despair? How do you think about the suffering at the hands of others? Those who have lost a mate or a loved one, do you say in your mind, do you allow the thoughts to be, my life will never be good again? I have lost all purpose for living. God does not really love me. I hate life now. Those are poisonous thoughts. They're not guarding the heart and the soul as a pure source of life. But they're allowing a corruption to come in to our very soul. That will affect how we live. Control our thoughts. 
those fantasizing about illicit sex, allowing that thought to continue to pervade their mind. There's a battle that must be drawn there to fight wrong thoughts. Those disappointed with life, don't permit yourself to fantasize about a better life. Steer your thoughts away from such fantasies. The life you wish you had. Imagining in your mind, allowing the thoughts to continue to control of, if I had a different mate. Oh, how life would be better. And we daydream about that. If I had a better job, if I had the job I really wanted, and we think about what it would be like and the money that we would receive, if I had more money, if I had more leisure, if I had more opportunities, and we dream about this life that's not real, in all of it saying, God is not good. There's a better way. We don't know what God's doing. With our lives, we don't know how He's using the disappointments of life to change us. We don't know where this will end as we enter into eternity and see the purposes of God. We need to control our thoughts not to put ourselves in another world and pretend ourselves there, but to think about this world and the goodness of God. There's those entertaining thoughts of despair and self-pity or worthlessness poisonous thoughts that are not guarded thoughts that look at ourselves in a self-pitying way that is unproductive the key in all of this and i just list a few examples that are common to humanity but the key in all of this is to bring every thought into captivity to christ just knowing that that's a process you're miles ahead of the natural man To know that I must work on my mind and what I think about and control the thoughts that are allowed to live there and exist there. I'm not going to drop dead corpses into my brain and let them rot there and show itself in a godless life. But I'm going to work to control what I think about. And I think practically speaking in my own life in this battle of mind is preaching the right messages to my brain, thinking the right thoughts. What is the counsel of God in this situation? What is the truth of God as it applies to my dealing with this disappointment in life or this trial or this temptation? What does God think? How would He counsel me to reason and to work through this? Not allowing my mind to just wander off into whatever seems to come naturally, but rather steering it and directing it and keeping it on the path that God would intend. So keeping my heart deals with my loves, what, I, what my affections are. It deals with what I think about. Thirdly, by way of application, guard your attitudes and feelings. Guard your attitudes and feelings. We are not, as our culture seems to insist, at the mercy of our feelings. With the power of God, we can choose not to give in to feelings such as jealousy, hatred, anger, despair, sensuality. We're not the pawns of these feelings. We are, by God's grace, through Christ, the children of God. We have a new heritage. We have a new power through the indwelling Spirit. We are not victims of our feelings. 
With the power of God, we can labor to combat pride and selfishness and harshness, for instance. And we can tap into the fruit of the Spirit so that the attitudes, the feelings that are driven through our being are marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the work of God in us. As we control our emotions, as we control our thinking, as we order our affections rightly. All of this pertains to watching the heart, guarding the heart with all diligence, knowing that this is a major project every moment of our life, because from our heart flows the springs of life. Life is drawn from our soul like a bucket draws water from a well. What kind of water is down there in your soul? What's the quality of your heart? That internalization of wisdom in our heart is utterly essential. And it leads now in the Father's instruction, verse 24, to the externalization of wisdom in one's actions. Think again of the heart. When the heart is good, the rest of the body can function. When the heart is bad and corrupt, the rest of the body is going to suffer. And so we see here, guard your heart, the internalization of wisdom, leads then to the externalization of wisdom in one's actions. Verse 24, put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk from you. Hear the focus on the tongue. Turn aside from crooked speech, I think is just paralleled there by put devious talk far from you when we guard our hearts we have the inner strength to avoid speech patterns that distort the truth twist the facts and serve harmful purposes so people say sometimes i just can't control my tongue let's learn to never say that let's learn to never accept that statement particularly if we're parents i can't control my tongue What we need to say is I have a weak heart. I've got a corrupt soul. And I'm speaking out of the outflow of my heart. That's where wrong speech comes from. Not that I can't control my tongue as it's somehow an independent member. Its weakness is displaying a weakness of my heart. What we should say is not, I cannot control my tongue. What we should say is, I'm a moral dullard. And we all are on some level. And our speech demonstrates that. From the tongue, the lesson moves now to the eyes. Verse 25, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Again, I think parallel statements in the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse. Let your eyes look directly forward, your gaze be straight. What does that mean? We must learn to keep our focus on the right path. This is a call to lead an undistracted life that focuses on ultimate things with undivided attention and unwavering loyalty to God's purposes. You might say, man, I'm in trouble there. I've got so many distractions in my life, I don't know how to keep life going. I've got all kinds of distractions. It's not the external distractions that are in view here, the ones we cannot control. 
What is in view here are the distractions of the inner life, the internal craving for a new, easier way of life in exchange for the call to take up the cross of Christ and follow Him. Don't turn your eyes away to the new, to the easier way. Keep on the path. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress talks about the by-path meadow. There was the narrow way that led to the celestial city. It was straight. It was useful. It sometimes was difficult. But Bypath Meadow ran alongside and it was this lush green field. Smooth sailing in Bypath Meadow. And wandering eyes and a loss of focus, a desire for easier circumstances lead Christian off the narrow way and on to Bypath Meadow. But it's here that he's captured and incarcerated by the giant of despair. And in like manner, this is a call to stay out of Bypath Meadow. It's a call to avoid the trap into which Eve fell when she, quote, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Her eyes, her gaze turned off of God and her focus came to be on something other than what it should be. Turning her eye toward what was forbidden, she fell and we with her. So the key here is a heart that is set on eternity and does not waver in its purpose to reach the final reward of God by walking in obedience to His Word. Keep your eyes focused on the right way. From lips to eyes, the instruction now moves at verse 26 to feet. Ponder the path of your feet then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. The Hebrew word in verse 26 for ponder could be taken in a more active sense, but the best idea seems to be watch your step. Pay attention to where you are walking on life's road. Stay on the right path and be awake. Be alert. The path of wisdom has been laid out before you. Make sure you stay on it. As verse 27 confirms, do not wander off the right path. And you won't if you keep your heart pure. Moral ruin does not come suddenly out of nowhere. It comes when someone has walked off the path. They've entered onto by-path meadow. That's where the trouble comes. When a person commits adultery, when a person betrays a friend, when a person curses God, when a person caves in to bitterness or greed, when a person abandons the church and breaks covenant with God's people and begins to live a life in tune with their own world and their own way and not with the people of God in this world, whoever that is, the process started a long time ago. It didn't just happen one day. There was a wandering of mind, a wandering of thought, a steering off of the path that takes place deep in the core of our being. And slowly, little by little, there are decisions that are made. And then the wheels come off. Yes, the problem is the external sin. 
that demonstrates itself to everyone with godly insight. But the display of the sin in the public realm, as wrong as that is, the more fundamental problem is a failure to guard the heart. That's what's really displayed there. And sometimes we're shocked by people who seem to be walking on the right way, and suddenly there's a revelation of this tremendous sin, this complete disorientation from the right direction. That didn't start overnight. And you might be on that path. You're on it right now and you don't know it. You've wandered off the true path. You're wandering off the side somewhere because you're not guarding what you're thinking about. You're not guarding your affections. You're allowing corruption to come into your life, allowing feelings and attitudes to control you that are not God-honoring. You don't realize it, but the wheels are going to come off. And this is a place where the merciful voice of God speaks out and says, guard your heart. Guard your heart with vigilance. Or you're going to destroy your life. If the well is corrupt, here is a place to turn. Don't allow your feet to stray off the path. Don't allow your eyes to wander. Don't allow your speech to be corrupted. But if you want to walk rightly in these ways, then deal with your heart. So there's presented to us here tremendous counsel. There's moral skill that is provided for us here. This moral skill is to learn to manage inner space. This is the counsel our Father gives us. This is really important. Manage inner space. Nurture your soul. The moral skill of learning to fight temptation in our heart. Learning to counsel my soul with the truth of God's Word and to align my spirit to that truth. How important it is to feed on the truth of God. To gather here week in and week out to hear the truth of God's Word and to be pressed by it and to be molded by it. How vital that is. To be feeding on the Word of God in your daily life knowing what God thinks but with the intake of that truth to be responding to it in your soul, at the core of your inner being, for there to be a continuing response and a management of the internal. This is where legalism is so ugly. Because it can put up a display of external rightness when the heart is corrupt. There's rotting flesh in the water. But nobody sees that down in the well. There's a skill here to fight the inner corruption. What we need to come to understand, and perhaps you don't yet today, is that by nature, our hearts are all corrupt. That's where we start. It's not clean out the well because some things have slipped here. 
We've had some things drop into the soul and it's really become corrupt. Rather, that's where we start. Our hearts are idle factories. They are deep wells that are thoroughly corrupt with the love of false gods and the moral filth of such things as lying and hating and selfishness and lust and greed and pride. They are factories of these wrong desires. We're bent that way in our moral nature. But here's the wonderful news. It does not come from cleaning out the junk until your heart is clean. The wonderful news is, and what we know innately, is we really can't clean it up on our own. But the news is that Jesus Christ was sent by God to die in the place of sinners. To die and pay the penalty of all that junk. Of all of that sin. It was thrown on Christ It was placed upon Him. And He dies in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of their sin. Rising from the dead, defeating the death that is the natural result of our corruption. Jesus did this for us. And so we don't go down into the well and get all the bones and all the rotting flesh out of there of all of our junk. But rather we turn it over to Christ and He gives us a new well. He gives us a new heart. A heart that is purified of sin and that now is ordered toward Him that trusts Jesus as our Savior and accepts the inpouring, the washing of the Holy Spirit, giving us new spiritual life. If you don't have that life, you need to trust Him today. You need to stop pretending that the well of your heart is okay and turn over to Christ the cleanup, the transformation through forgiveness. Jesus said this in John 8, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, living water, pure water, clean water that flows from the heart that's been washed clean by Christ and that trusts in his saving grace. This is what we need. Friend, is not today the day to leave your sin and to seek the purifying, forgiving grace of Jesus Christ? To stop trying to fight your own battle, to be good in your own self, and to receive the forgiveness that Jesus provides. Today's the day. Turn and receive Christ as your Savior. There are people who live wicked lives because their hearts are evil. There are people who live decent lives because their hearts are evil. We call them hypocrites. And there are people who live morally skillful lives with godly discernment because their hearts have been purified by the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Every one of them is a sinner. Every one of them fails but they know that there's an inner spring that is pure. That has been purified by a work of God. It is these people who with new healthy hearts can run life's race with freedom and with skill. It's these people who are not tearing down their own life internally and giving in to a corruption that continues to draw them down and harm others It's these who can live with skill and run. And if you want to be one of them, then you're going to run with Jesus. You've got to come to Him. 
If you want to be one of them, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And what our saving God wants to do is to so purify our lives that by obedience to His Word, by walking in fellowship with Him, what comes out of our hearts is a life of freedom and love and goodness and mercy. A life that we enjoy until we find it fully in Him in eternity. Take that life. Guard your heart. Let's bow for prayer. I pray, Father, that You would take our lives that they would be consecrated wholly to You. And I pray that, well, there's a lot of homework here for every one of us. There's, there's junk inside of my heart. And I pray, God, that we would actively root it out, not to find salvation, but to express the salvation that is a free gift of your grace through Christ and the washing of his Holy Spirit. But I pray, Father, that we would deal with sin and deal with the corruption that is in our soul. This is a warning call, certainly, to a number of us who are off the track and who are allowing corruption to rot away in our inner being. And it's going to come out. I pray that we'd fight for righteousness, trusting in the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to our account. And again, I pray in behalf of anyone who does not know Christ as Savior, Father, show them that all you desire to give them is freedom and life in the Spirit. Draw them to this place and give us new hearts that are supple and healthy and fuel godly actions and words and attitudes that we may be conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. There's so much work to do for all of us. But I pray right now that we do the homework, that we'd look deep within and identify those orientations of heart that are drawing us after idols, taking us away from Christ crucified and risen. May you purify us through this exhortation today. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.